Okay, so today my guest is Professor Usha Haley. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Usha as a person, Professor Haley is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Usha uh, Haley is a distinguished chair in international business at Wichita State University. She chairs the World Trade Council of Wichita. Her research focuses on multinational corporations and international strategy, especially in Asian and emerging markets, including business government relations, innovation, technology development, strategic decision making, uh, sanctions and subsidies. She has over 280 articles, books and chapters. Uh, two of her books are on international bestseller lists. Uh, she has received many competitive research grants, including the NSF. The, uh, as you know, it's one of the top research uh, institutions, uh, foundations. She uh, sits on six academic journals, editorial boards, serves, uh, served as founding co-editor, editor-in-chief, regional editor for four journals, edited four special issues, and she is the co-editor-in-chief of the book series, Multinational Investment and Business, and seven-volume encyclopedia of multinational investment and growth. Thank you, Usha, for joining us. Thank you, Ilgas, for having me on your program. Uh, you got a great office. I'm not at my office. I'm at my uh, kitchen uh, you know, table here, having a cup of coffee with a friend, talking about informal things, recorded for posterity and ever and ever, of course. So, um, Perfect. Let's start. Uh, Usha, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Oh, geez. I was born in India. I grew up there, spent my formative years there. And in India, Indians have two passions. One is politics and the other is cricket. And I found out early on that I'm not a good cricketer. And I thought I would want to get into politics, uh, but I wasn't really very good at it. And I still am not. And so I became a Monday morning quarterback. I started analyzing what people do in political situations and how resources are distributed. And I'm continuing to do that till today in some format or the other. Interesting. I, I, I mean, I do want to ask you about your uh, influence later on. And uh, that it actually says here that you testified before the US Senate, the Committee on Ways and Means, US International Trade Commission, US Department of Commerce, US Trade of Representatives, and your research on Chinese subsidies is the basis of three pieces of EU anti-dumping regulations. Uh, how did you, uh, uh, is this because of your background in international relations? How did you get oh, to yeah. this side? See, I consider myself lucky to be an IB person because IB people are more ecumenical in that they look at different things. They look at the same phenomena, but often from different perspectives. So when you talk to, you can talk to an IB person mostly about political science or economics or management. I mean, they have a very broad, they're interdisciplinary to their bones. It's in their DNA. It's in our DNA. Mm -hmm. And so that allows you to see problems that are existing. That is to see an issue again for the first time. And so when I get in, got into this uh, thing of testifying before the US Congress, as I told you, I'm, uh, I've been contacted last week to do so again next month. And I'm also going to be talking about my research at the National Security Forum in May, et cetera. It started out as many things 
have done in my life fortuitously uh, by accident. Don't get me wrong, I plan all the time. I plan every detail of, of the day that I'm in, in chunks and hours. I have three, three, three month plans, one year plans, five year plans. And what I have found out is that I'm very good at planning for the small things, you know, what I'm gonna wear and what I'm gonna have for breakfast. But the big things in life, where I'm going to work, who I'm going to marry, what I'm going to do for decades, I my plans haven't worked. <laughs> and so <laughs> over time, I've gotten more used to seeing opportunities as they come by and taking them. And we wrote a book, George Haley, my husband, uh, Tan Chintiong, uh, who's a prominent professor in Singapore, and I, when we were in Singapore, called the Chinese, uh, well, we wrote two books, New Asian Emperors and another one called the Chinese Tao Business, but both made bestseller lists. I mean, they were not written for an academic audience. And they, this book, New Asian Emperors, and that we wrote that the data that we use and that we teach our students, you know, the, the theories based on these data that we teach to our students in classes, are not what managers and policymakers use in emerging markets. And at that time, it was revolutionary uh, because even our government relies on data, the US government relies on data that these emerging markets communicate to them. So they rely on official data. But if you talk to any of these policymakers and managers about the data that they use, they say they don't use these data. <laughs> they often have these data for legitimacy purposes for certain stakeholders, but they use different kinds of data because they know, as we found out, that many, many times these data are not worth the paper on which they're written. So I got a call and this was, jeez, uh, almost more than a decade ago. And the, and the person in government with whom I still communicate said, you know, I read your book, uh, New Asian Emperors. It was, it was written up in The Economist and The Wall Street Journal. And I wanna ask you, we're, we are doing this, we have this issue with Chinese subsidies. We, we know they're subsidizing, but the data that they are releasing don't seem to make any sense with what we're seeing. Can you do it? Can you do it? Can you help with that? And I said, yeah, sure. I think I can. I've got to start off and look at all the data and things. And we did. We started off. And what I thought would be a three-month project went on for a year. And that was the steel subsidies. To date, it remains the only systematic study of how China subsidizes its steel industry. Well, those data, and I, I want to say right off here, when people say, oh, you're testifying before the U.S. Congress, but I write for journal articles. Let me tell them that testifying before the U.S. Congress, when it deals with billions of dollars of trade and other, is far more stressful because each interested party gets their own lawyers, gets their most, more, own investigators to go through the data with a fine tooth comb. They have much more at stake than a journal article. And so they did that, and the data stood up to scrutiny. So these data and others like that were made into regulation. And I don't know very many other people, I mean, I know a few, but I don't know very many other people who can say that their work has been made, incorporated directly into over 40 pieces of, you know, has had regulatory influence over 40 times and has actually been incorporated into federal regulation 
the basis for federal regulation in the US as well as the EU and Germany and, and um, you know, discussed in parliament in Australia and India. So. This is fascinating. Uh, Usha, I, I'm curious. I mean, you were born in India and uh, between uh, that part of your life and the, the, the story is just, you just uh, explained, you know, uh, you're not only an academic, but also uh, you have influence on uh, policy and yeah. these institutions, these uh, uh, supranational, uh, let's call them supranationals. So uh, how did you choose academia in the first place? Because I wasn't really very good at anything else. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me just back up here. I told you I was not a good politician. Uh, but my family, you know, they pushed education. A lot of Indian families do. So my father had a, did his PhD in Tübingen in West Germany, and he had two Nobel laureates on his PhD committee. And he thought he was a chemical engineer, as all most good Indians are. They're engineers or medical doctors. So when I decided that I wanted to be a po political scientist, which I got my first bachelor's from in politics from Elphinstone College in Bombay, and that I wanted to continue. I mean, it, it really did break his heart because he wanted me to be an engineer like him or, or a doctor like all my cousins were. So I um, went, I, I first started out in the, in the master's and PhD program at, um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I, had, I hope when, when I was going through my bachelor's, I was still very young and I applied to the GRE and I've, I believe I topped the GRE worldwide. So in those days in India, we could not get money out. I mean, my father could not, for example, pay for my education in the US. I had to get scholarships. And so at first when I sent out my, my, you know, um, my transcripts and all that, they never really, they weren't really impressed. A first class in India means a lot. And a 90 plus in the US means just an A. <laughs> Um, so it's, you know, they didn't, they weren't impressed, but then when they saw the GRE scores, I still remember my old professor, Roger Kanat says, well, these other scores, they don't make that much sense to us. We don't know what they actually mean, what her background is, but this score translates and this, these scores, we, we should give her a chance. You've got to understand. I was only 17 when I came to the U S I thought I was old, but I wasn't really in <laughs> retrospect. Uh, I, um, I got my first master's at the University of Illinois at Urbana when I was 18. And I was in, in the PhD program because that's the way it drifted on. I wasn't really interested and I wasn't really ready. So I pulled out and I worked as it was a speech writer for the UN for a while. And by that time I was like say 18 or 19. I did graduate work in journalism, mass communications research, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I worked as a journalist and I was still young, I think I was 21 or so. And I, by that time I had come to realize that I really did want to do a PhD after all. I, I, I enjoyed delving into problems. I enjoyed the university atmosphere. And so I applied, I wanted to do a PhD in international business. I, my father became a businessman in India. I grew up with business people and I was always international. I mean, that's growing up in India at the time that I was, we, we were international, a certain, you know, upper middle class people were international. I wanted to do that. And, you know, my studies had all been international, international relations, etc. 
So I got into the PhD program at NYU, and that was a that for all practical purposes was a double PhD program. So you actually got everything, all the coursework, et cetera, for a PhD in your functional area, which for me was management, but then you got a real grounding in economics and statistics and all the other things that we use as scholars in IB. And that was a wonderful experience. It took me seven years though, and I was trained to be an academic in both areas. And then I couldn't get a job. <laughs> My, uh, I, I graduated during the um, Reagan era and I tried and tried and I couldn't. So I won, you know, what I turned to, to my husband and said, what do, you, what do you think I should do? I had gotten an offer to be a consultant at a major company in Italy. I took that job for like a year. I was working as a consultant in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, Florence. But I really did want to get back into academics. And at that time, my husband said, look, we, why don't we become emerging market specialists? And I've got to know in those days, um, emerging markets weren't in the forefront as they are now. I remember my journalism professor saying, the first you know, lead on your first, the first page of the newspaper, man bites dog, page four or five, <laughs> Russia bombs China. <laughs> but honestly, that failure, you know, the failure of not being able to get a job, which in those days I, I thought was crushing, led to the most amazing opportunities because I saw the rest of the world. And I do believe that even though I was born elsewhere and grew up elsewhere and came to this country only when I was 17, that you really do need training in a country. It's not just sufficient that you're born in another country. You need training in international business. You need the training to understand at an academic level, a different culture or a different society and their institutions. I got that. So when I went to these emerging markets, I wasn't just going as somebody who was born in India and knew, in, and knew my little part of India really well. I was going there as a trained academic. And it was the most marvelous experience. We had not been married very long. Uh, we still didn't have a, a child. Um, so we first went to Mexico <laughs> and we worked at the Tecnológico de Monterrey. It's a fabulous experience. Um, and then we already had other jobs. We had a job at the National University of Singapore. I wanted to stay in Mexico another year and I kept postponing and they wrote me back and knowing Singapore wasn't an idle threat. If you don't come, you will never step into Singapore again. <laughs> We're not postponing by another year. So we went to Singapore and every single time when you get uprooted and you start working in a new country, in a new academic environment, where your old networks, your old data don't seem to make very much sense, you are forced to form new roots. It's like a tree being uprooted. You're forced to see things again for the first time. And that itself was an extraordinary experience, being an academic. NUS gave us the opportunity to get to know Southeast Asia and develop an interest in China. And then I've continued to work abroad in, in universities. I worked in Australia. I worked in New Zealand most recently. And it's, uh, I've been an academic. And I think, um, I hope I've been more than, an, more than a Monday morning quarterback. 
uh, fascinating. Um, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Oh, I love cooking. <laughs> I collect cookbooks. There's something about cooking. You know, it's constrained. You have to work within the kitchen environment and your implements, but it's also creative. I mean, you can't just sit there, stir, and let your mind wander off. It's just the right mixture of being involved and of letting go. And, and I find that I'm not the greatest cook in the world. I mean, I've just finished a, a study of Michelin star chefs and their creativity. And we had the opportunity to study these top quality chefs and their innovation. And, and clearly there is no comparison. But for me, you know, I mean, I'm always trying, it, it's just the right mixture of challenge and, and, uh, and understanding and continuity. Uh, about regret, something that you wish you would have done uh, or done differently? Oh my gosh, these are tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really know. I mean, I the, you can't step into the same river twice. So if I had taken another path, I don't know in which reality I would be in. I know I didn't take the path I planned. But would I have actually changed what I learned, the experiences I had, the people I met? I don't know. I mean, I think that would be too far across. I don't, I don't really know. I didn't take a job at a top university in the US and my path would have been different. Hmm. Um, and I didn't, I made some other decisions, but it's like the branching of a tree. You know, you don't really know what would have been. Sure. Pusha, what are you most proud of? I think the external influence that I have had, this sort of stuff, the getting into Congress and the testimonies and the effects on regulation, the fact that I've taken risks with my career, even when they were not easy risks, when they were not the easy thing to do, um, I did that. And so I paid the price, I have the scars, but when I sit back and I think of myself as a young girl, um, you know, I don't think I ever wanted to say, and I never thought about it quite that way. Usha, when I, when when you grow up, you want to be somebody who publishes just these articles that appeal to two or three people in your field, and nobody else has any knows anything about it. I wanted to make a difference, uh, like so many young people do, and I have tried to do that. Thank you. Uh, about the research portion. Uh, how do you explain your research and what you do? Why is it important to uh, people uh, on the street, uh, laymen who don't read academic research, who okay. don't come to our conferences? I That's actually a tough question. I'm a problem solver and I see myself as a creative problem solver. But if you look at my work, almost all of it is international. I can think of one article among the hundreds I've published or the books that is not international. So that is my perspective. I look at international problems. Uh, within those, I go into depth and I'm often influenced by what I know. If you, if you look at the clusters, for example, let me just talk about the, the subsidy stuff we talked about, the sanction stuff that I'm still dealing with. And I told you about the work with the government and the national security um, you know, issues that I'm dealing with. But the work that I did for the work I'm doing currently on creativity and innovation. And, and one of the things I did learn as an academic that I didn't know as a layperson was that the level of analysis is everything. 
So for example, when I look at the creativity and innovation of chefs, it's quite different from the NSF grant that I'm doing and the, the, the book I'm writing for Oxford University Press on it, which is uh, you know, creativity and innovation in an industry and how foreign direct investment say shapes that, shapes that innovation trajectory. You look at very many different variables, but the issues have been somewhat the same. So creativity and innovation, technology management, um, sanctions, subsidies, foreign direct investment, multinationals, and trade. Oh, I've started doing a lot of work now on impact, external impact. And that too was a sort of a fortuitous meandering. Okay. About uh, creativity, creativity in, uh, how do you approach creativity in scholarship? Or what do you think of creativity in scholarship? Not creative innovation in industry, but uh, creativity in academic work. You know, I. One of the things that the chefs um, have taught me is that you don't have to be wildly creative. <laughs> I mean, so for example, there are, there are chefs that deal with the traditional French classic cuisine. And there you have a very, very strict rules in that, within that cuisine, and yet you can be creative. And then there are chefs that deal with nouvelle cuisine and avant-garde cuisine, and you can be wildly creative and use blow torches, you know, on flans, and they too are creative. So I really think it depends on the constraints and the value that you want to contribute at your level of analysis and within, you don't have to break down every barrier, uh, change the way we look at the world forever, you know, with one phrase. It's, you can be creative within constraints. And I do think there are plenty of people in IB, not pessimistic. I do think there are plenty of people in IB who are creative within the limits that they have set for themselves. About my curiosity, now let's just uh, put your uh, thinking in, this term, uh, in the term of how the French uh, chefs are creating interesting uh, things, interesting things to eat, right? Uh, how is the process working for them? Do they just sit idly and all of a sudden something comes to their mind? Sometimes it does. But those that are working in classic cuisine, where there are really strict regulations, they are more bound by the rules. Even within those rules, they strive for perfection and creativity. And Michelin stars, we chose that because, they, and, we, and we spoke to these chefs at length and observed them. And one of my co-authors on this project happened to train as a, as a, as a Michelin star chef. So he also brought in a different perspective, but they are, the stars mark you on creativity. So creativity is others see you, not just as how you see yourself. So these classic cuisine, the French classic cuisine, they are much more constrained by the rules of that cuisine, but they are creative nevertheless. And when you talk about avant-garde, you know, where you inhale your food and other such things, they are less constrained and they too are creative. But even then, they find some rhythm within that creativity. So I'm not really talking about first come, first serve creativity, new to an idea. I don't believe there are very many new ideas per se, but I do think that you have to build up systematically on knowledge for breakthroughs. And it could be at a different trajectory for, any, for anyone, but doesn't have to be, uh, you know, wildly creative new ideas. You could be creative within the constraints you set for yourself. 
about uh, I hope I answered your question. Yes, thank you. It was very helpful. Uh, <clears throat> about research in IB. Uh, what are the next uh, big questions that we should be asking? What are the, some of the things that we've forgotten or neglected forgotten. or omitted? I think what drew me to IB and what keeps me there is that we are a place of big ideas. Uh, and our ideas literally change the world. I mean, we don't really have to sit and hide, you know, our, our, um, our talent of what we have done. Our theories of the multinational corporation is Stephen Heimer's conceptualization of why a multinational corporation is different from a domestic corporation. Our theories of international trade, such as comparative advantage, have literally shaped the way we work and see and see the distribution of power. The power of nation states vis-a-vis -vis multinationals, the power of trade, trading partners over each other. And so I do think we need to go back to those, to those big ideas. So for example, there is a huge, there push and pull in academics. And there is this huge pull to be doing incremental work because we need to, at a certain stage of career, young scholars do need to publish or they perish. And so there's an enormous incentive to publish in certain sorts of journals. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm very proud of my Jibs article. So I do understand the value of those sorts of things. But I do think that perhaps they may want to keep a notebook because they're going to get more and more focused and become, you know, concentrating on two or three variables and the methodology of it all. But to keep a notebook of the big ideas that inspired them, of the changes that they hoped to, to create and go back and refer to them, sort of like a journal every once in a while to keep them inspired. See the work I'm doing currently on impact and, and I'm looking at it as a management scholar, but in the last few months I've been working with the with the editor from FT, Financial Times, and also with Sage on looking at academic impact. Most of us start off wanting to have external impact. By the time we get through the career phase, we've established ourselves. Either the drive has decreased or we've lost the vocabulary to communicate to external stakeholders. I think we need a drive. Um, there is a Work at, um, there is, I think it's really more of a back of the envelope calculation than at Wharton There's, that I quote in, that, in my latest book, Impact in the Management Research. That we, it costs society about $400,000 to publish an a, what we would consider an A plus journal article. Jibs would be among them. Um, think of the cost to society, if nobody really benefits from those ideas and that work, that except two or three people in our very narrow fields or expertise. So we really do need to think of ourselves as being part of ecosystems, as of being, providing public service, really, of communicating our ideas our brilliance, I mean, they're brilliant scholars in international business, as there are in every other part of academics, to a wider audience. And it's not just lowering ourselves to talk to people. It's actually communicating in a vocabulary that's meaningful for them. What can you say about the evolution of the field and what are we losing uh, along the way? Where are we headed to, basically? Okay. 
I see several trajectories that could take place, you know. Um, I do fear that we might, that this pendulum might swing too far to becoming just, to become methodologists. Um, and as my friend, Kerry Cooper said, he does not see impact as standing on one, uh, one leg doing Lizro. Okay, that's not impact. Impact is actually reaching out and, and influencing. And you could have influence on students, of course, and through them to through society. But with every step, there is a filter. So if you influence students, their views will impact the world as much as your views will. You know, I mean, that's important as well. But actually influencing government, influ as we did as IB scholars, uh, influencing the way company. Early, early on, you mean? Uh, Not so much are... now, given the numbers. Okay, I'm sure there are people who are doing it now as well, but the proportion has decreased, wouldn't you say? Would you agree? So you're saying early on, so you're talking about 1970s, 1980s, yes. IB was more uh, impactful. Is, is that what you're saying? Uh, externally impactful. Externally impactful. Um, I'm just talking about the proportion of people working in the area. I'm so sure there are people who are working now in the area. But if we whip out impact figures from journals and you know other things as being impactful or even uh, citations, uh, you know it's not enough. We do need to have some external impact, simply because we live in ecosystems. Ecosystems of well, ecosystems that include governments and okay. and and you know companies and societies and communities all of whom support our work. <laughs> What's your prediction? I asked this question to quite a number of people. Uh, is it going to be the world of globalization going forward? Is it going to be the world of nationalization and more populism uh, studies on that impact uh, that we will observe in the media, in uh, not really academic, but uh, actual uh, policy uh, outputs. What is the next step? I, I don't think it's going to be as clear cut as all that. I think as, as in most areas, it's going to be gray. There are some areas where we will be global. But I do think we've understood through this pandemic, certainly, that supply chains are affected when they're completely global. We do need to start thinking about risk aversion. We need to start giving back to building up the communities in which we are based and not just think about building up every other country in the world. So that too is important. I mean, you know, uh, and I, I do think we're going to get some sort of fragmentation. I don't know how things are going to eventually fall into place. I try as never to make predictions, especially about the future. I find I'm making them all the time and they keep getting replayed because they're wrong. So I'm, you know, I'm, but it's, it's, um, I, that's how I feel. I think there will be some areas that will be global. I do think there are some areas that will be regional, even local. And I think that will continue to change as we have new technologies, new problems that come up. Um, we will come up with new solutions. Perfect. Uh, Usha, do you remember the best advice you received when you were going through the PhD program yourself? I can't think of one piece of advice. I don't think I would have followed it. I think it was more the behavior of the people that I grew to admire. Their consistency, their discipline, their humility, their desire to 
to have an impact, not just to the students, but to, out to the outside world. I think those consistent behaviors were to me, um, you, you know, and, and, and just basically their decency. <laughs> you know, we tend to forget as academics, but also people, just basic decency towards academics and towards, towards students and others. And I think that their behavior more than their one piece of advice um, really had a great influence. Okay. Can you uh, identify a couple of top three big mistakes that uh, people often do, young scholars, uh, junior faculty, patients uh, usually, uh, can you pinpoint some of the major problems or issues that you see that you would say don't do it? You know, there is a better way of doing it so that uh, they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Oh, mistakes. Um, yeah. I don't want to start breaking into Frank Sinatra's song. I've made too many mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> really, I hope I have learned from them. Every single time I have tried to regroup and change my trajectory. Uh, I do think some of the mistakes I made led to some of the best outcomes that I could have hoped for that I never planned for. Uh, I do think um, I, I can't uh, advise people generally on the kinds of mistakes to avoid. I do think as perhaps what I learned as an IB academic and going through the IB PhD programs was that we instinctively in IB know that we can't Trans tr theories don't literally translate across the world. So say a theory developed in the United States cannot be expected to be applied willy-nilly to India or Japan or the Seychelles or some, something to that. Um, but we should also understand that data similarly cannot be translated. So the data that we create that shapes our theories and our testing of theories are not the same around the world, nor are the institutions that produce these data the same. And I think that is something we still don't instinctively understand. So distributing surveys in China will not get you the same degree of validity as it would in the US because of the constraints. I'm just using one example. Uh, for me, you know, finding out that the data that these, that these governments release, not necessarily for nefarious purposes, but because the institutions were not really capable of generating the granular valid data that we have in the US uh, could not really be relied on by our policymakers to form decisions about China or anywhere else. So that, that I think we still need to understand instinctively. We do understand theory can't go around. And a lot of, a lot of disciplines don't. Uh, oh, for the sake of time, uh... What's the question that I should have asked you, but haven't? Oh, wow. These are tough questions. <laughs> you didn't tell me you were going to be such a tough interviewer. Oh, I, a... I, I think, um, why do you do what you do? There you go. Uh, why do I do? Because I enjoy it. I get up in the morning excited about working. I delve into problems. I'm inspired by so many people. I get ideas from so many sources. Um, and when it stops being fun, I hope I have the courage to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, this was very interesting. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you so much, Usha. Thank you. <laughs>